welcome to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We are broadcasting today via remote access so that in light of the COVID-19 health emergency, we can maintain our social distancing and still bring you today's show. Please be patient if we experience any technical glitches. We hope that everyone listening is safe and healthy and doing what they can to protect themselves and our communities during this health emergency. Wealth Matters is presented to you by Gaslowitz Frankel, a law firm dedicated to resolving disputes involving your wealth, whether through your will, your trust, your business, or your investments. For news, pictures, and tips, go to our website at gaslowitzfrankel.com or follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute. Our show's hashtag is, not surprisingly, Wealth Matters. Your hosts today are Craig Frankel and Adam Gaslowitz, and today we're talking about personal property and estates, planning, appraising, and auctioning. Now it's time to introduce our guests. We're pleased to have with us today Alyssa Quinlan, Chief Business Development Officer at Hyman Auctions, and Alan Bennett, Estate and Trust Advisor at SunTrust Bank, now Truist. And before we start, let me have each of you just uh, tell our audience uh, uh, who you are and what your background is. So Alyssa, why don't you, uh, why don't you go first? Good morning, everyone. So my name again is Alyssa Quinlan, and I am, uh, like Adam said, Chief Business Development Officer at Heinemann Auctions. We were founded in 1982 and uh, conduct about 120 auctions a year in various categories like fine art and jewelry and all different things. My background is actually finance and the art world. So some people call me a recovering banker, but uh, it's nice to have an understanding of trust and what goes into that. Alan, how about you? Well, I uh, handle estates and trusts for SunTrust Bank, which has gone through a merger with our friends at BB&T, and we will soon start using the name Truist Bank. I've been handling estates for, oh, closing in on 40 years, um, the last 25 years in Atlanta, but before that, um, in Chicago, where I started working with Leslie Heinemann back around the time she started. Uh, why don't we start, uh, since we're talking about personal property, uh, why don't we just start with defining for our audience what personal property is? Alan, you want to you give that a shot? Well, sure. It's things. Um, and again, I handle estates uh, for a bank. I have the pleasure, I've handled estates from you know, those that are relatively modest, under half a million, to those that are you know, worth hundreds of millions. And the one thing that is true for all of those is everybody has stuff. Um, and so the other thing that I have learned over the years, and I think Craig and Adam, you would agree, is that it's relatively easy, no matter how hard the family, you know, how the family gets along, it's relatively easy to split up, say, shares of Acme Industries, uh, publicly traded shares. Um, obviously, more challenges with something like a, a closely held business, but there aren't that many families that have those. So in my experience, where the fights can come in is divvying up the personal effects. That's so actually where we see the biggest fights. Um, yes. Even when there's lots and lots of money, you think it's a fight over money. It's a fight over the teapot or the recipes. Yeah, absolutely. The the family photographs, the you know all of that. So a lot of emotional attachment uh, to the personal property, certainly. So we we often describe it as tangible personal property. Um, so anything really the opposite, intangible being the stock portfolio and being able to divide up a painting is much more difficult. There are some people that do have fractional interests. So we do see some clients that will have a rotational schedule for paintings where 
uh, for one holiday, the family A has it, and then the next holiday, family B hangs it above their fireplace. Um, but there is, like you said, a lot of emotional attachment to to the personal property. So we do see a lot of a lot of planning that needs to be done, and and sadly, a lot of fighting if it's not done. Well, the emotional attachment comes from not the attachment to the thing, but to the attachment to the uh, the person who owned the thing. So if mom collected Hummels, you have an attachment to the Hummels because they were mom's Hummels. Mom wants everyone to have a Hummel and can't convince the, the kids to take them. So, Alan, do you see when people that in addition to an emotional attachment, sometimes some members of the family attach a value so that they think that somehow my sister's getting this picture and she says she wants it because it was mom's favorite picture. But the real reason she wants it is because she perceives it to have tremendously greater value than the picture of Bubba that her brother's getting. Absolutely. I, you know, that I do see. And um, something that I recommend, um, which absolutely you know, to think about, it doesn't fit in every circumstance, but it's typical for those you know, who, who do estate planning or um, who, who are, have estates that are planned for them to just say, you know, personal property to be divided without any kind of cash equalization. And I really like, I have found it to be very helpful to have cash equalization language built in, where when you divvy up the personal effects, you do a cash equalization. So if if one person wants the very valuable item, it's especially useful if you have, say, just one or two very valuable items and the rest is routine. Um, well, how do you do that? How do you treat the three kids fairly when you know there's the one personal property item that's worth $100,000 and everything else combined is worth only you know, $20,000? So I think that, that that's a, a good technique to use. How do you know what it's worth? Well, I call Alyssa. <laughs> How do you know what it's worth? Yes, well, we have uh, specialists that focus on that. So they've spent years and years um, in their particular categories or fields. And so they basically start to get an idea of what that value would be. So um, it is always a good practice to have property uh, appraised. Um, so that can be done by independent appraisers or by auction houses um, if they do handle appraisals in-house. Um, and so basically what you're, what we always advise clients to do is try to get a fair market value appraisal in addition to retail replacement value because those values can be so different. So fair market value is really that secondary value. So that would be the price that it would sell for at auction. By definitions, it's the price at which a willing buyer and willing seller would agree to sell under no compulsion to. So that is somebody that has a little bit more time. And that is really kind of that true market. Retail replacement value, on the other hand, which is used for insurance purposes, is that the highest value. That's really if, there, if there's a fire or if there is a diamond ring that's stolen and someone has to go into a store and replace it immediately without being able to wait for a certain object to come up at auction, you do pay a premium for that. Um, and so it, there is no real formula for it. You know, sometimes people say, is the, is the fair market value a fraction by 25% or uh, 30%? It really depends on the category. Um, so you'll see contemporary art might be much more closely aligned where the um, value that you pay for in a gallery would be similar to what you would get at auction. Um, but pianos, for example, is something that does not have a strong secondary market. And you can have a, you know, Steinway piano that needs to have a retail replacement value of 100000 
that very same piano might fetch only about 25,000 at auction. So by the way, you're being generous on pianos. <laughs> this, is, this is the top of the line. <laughs> sideways, yes. <laughs> yeah, there's many, many others that uh, don't go anywhere near that. But the, the top of the line, if you're talking about a brand new Steinway versus um, something at auction, you know, that's, that is a, a huge disparity. And there's oftentimes a lot of questions about that. We see that a lot with jewelry, where people have valuable collections of jewelry that are that were worth a lot when they bought them, and maybe worth a lot for appraisal values, but in terms of uh, resale or, or, or divvying up purposes, the value is substantially less. Alan, when you do, when you're looking at the values, do you get an appraisal of everything, or do you go to someone like an Alyssa or Heinemann and say, what are the things that are worth appraising, and some things just aren't worth appraising? Do you do kind of like a ballpark first, or do you go ahead and appraise everything? Well, one of the challenges that I have working for, you know, what in the trade is called a corporate fiduciary. Usually I'm handling estates that require an estate tax return. And that means that I need to have a fair market value appraisal of everything. And, you know, in fact, that's not the best use of Alyssa's firm. So we need a generalist appraiser. We do certainly have, and with the estate tax exemption as high as it is now, we have more and more where we are handling estates that do not require a tax return. We still prefer an appraisal in every instance because how do we know that we're treating our family fairly if we don't have an appraisal? But, tell, tell our listeners what the estate tax exemption is in case they don't know. Uh, 11480000 I think, this year. So pretty high. <laughs> Much higher than most people need to worry about. But then also, I, honestly, you know, that's just the reality is that for every a state or item that you might run across that might be worth selling at auction. Typically, again, most people have a lot more just plain stuff. And so that that is, you know, more of a challenge. We don't get an appraisal on every case, but we do try. And I was going to follow up on what Adam was saying that I and I have over the last 35, 40 years, I've used this exact same analogy countless times with families to try to get across the idea of the different values. And I usually use jewelry. So you go into a jewelry store, you deal with a jeweler you have never met before, and you buy a ring for $500. And that jeweler says, you know, and you ask them for um, a replacement, or you ask them for an appraisal. And what they're going to give you is a replacement appraisal. And they're going to say to you, that I've given you such a tremendous deal on this ring, it's really worth $1,000. I'm going to give you that insurance appraisal of $1,000. If you were to walk around, you know, theoretically to the back door um, as a jewelry wholesaler to sell, you know, to replace the ring he just sold or she just sold you, they would pay you, you know, you paid 500, they would pay perhaps 250 um, for that very same ring. And what we have to explain to our family members is that when we get a fair market value appraisal, 50. So it doesn't matter what you paid for it. It's what could you sell it for today? And occasionally there's something like that Andy Warhol print um, behind Alyssa's shoulder that has gone up in value dramatically, but 99 times out of 100, you know, the furniture, the jewelry, what have you is worth only, you know, some fraction of what was paid for it. We were just talking about pianos, that's certainly true. I mean, one of the challenges that I and my colleagues have had in the last few years is how to get rid of pianos. And it's painful, you know, for for folks who appreciate a nice piano. It's tough to pay someone to take it away. 
What do you what do you do with um, more unusual types of um, uh, personal property? The um, you know historic writings, um, you know antiques, uh, gun collections, uh, things like that. Art, artifact. A lot of people have artifacts, uh, archaeological type things. Uh, sometimes they're they're um, they're real. Sometimes they're fakes. Um, how do you, how do you deal with things like that? Well, the challenge, of course, is hopefully recognizing um, you know that that diamond in the rough or, or whatever analogy you want to use. Um, and once again. You know, it really helps whether you're, you're dealing with Alyssa's firm or another appraiser and speaking to the folks out there who might be acting as executor of their, you know, uncle's estate or what have you, protect yourself by hiring a qualified appraiser. Because if he or she misses the diamond in the rough, at least it's not your fault, um, it's their fault. And, and you mentioned guns, that's another uh, all you know, joking aside, guns can be very dangerous, and they can be very dangerous for an executor just to mishandle them. So, a lot of times, sometimes, typical appraisers will handle guns. Um, oftentimes, we use a a gun dealer to to do those appraisals for us. You know, we have about fifteen you know specific categories that we have specialists in, and you know, options of all various things. If there is a category that we do not handle, for instance, wine. Uh, if Alan were to come to us and say, I have a client with all these various types of collections and, and a major wine collection as well, we have referrals for that. And so it's just, you know, it's helpful to know that there are auction houses that, you know, focus on many different categories. Um, so it's not always, you know, although we handle very many different types of categories, there are some that we do not. We don't handle cars, we don't handle wine, but there are firms out there that do. And so um, if you were to ask somebody that's been in the business a long time, they will definitely be able to, to make a recommendation for uh, where to sell certain objects. Are there some things that are just hard to get rid of? You know, maybe uh, prized dogs or horses or uh, you know, ivory items that may be illegal now, things like that. I mean, I mean what, what things cause you stress when you are presented with them at an auction house? Certainly ivory is a big one. That is a, a pain point for many, many clients because they have you know, very sizable collections many times. Um, in Illinois, it's illegal to sell ivory regardless of age or documentation. So basically that's, that's really killed the market for it. And it's very similar in other states as well. So basically if the family doesn't want it, there are very limited options for collections that could on paper be worth tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars. So ivory is certainly a difficult one to sell. Endangered species is another one. Uh, we do sell some taxidermy, um, but it needs to have the proper documentation and paperwork. Um, and, and so it is, you know, that is one of our major questions. You'll always hear um, uh, an auction house asking for is, is documentation or provenance. That's the, uh, you know, that history of the piece. So having receipts, documentation to anybody listening for uh, you know, for anybody that purchases things, keep keep the receipts, keep the records. Um, that will be very helpful down the road. Yeah, absolutely. Keep the records. One of the things about guns, um, most guns in this country are not regulated, but there is a small subset. We, we don't need to get into great details, but there's a small subset of what I call exotic weapons, National Firearms Act weapons, where that documentation is critical um, and failure to have it properly documented can make it a crime to possess it. Um, and while I've never actually heard of, say, an executor or a trustee being prosecuted because they happen to have one of those weapons without the documentation, under the law they could be. So again, 
you want to be working with experts who understand um, with something like ivory, again, and I, this is a, it sounds like a broken record, something else that doesn't have a lot of value anymore records, but the ivory, you know, personally, you know, I see a carved figurine. I don't know if it's plastic or if it's ivory and um, in at least under, I believe the federal law, whether it is legal or illegal to sell that piece may depend upon when it was carved and imported into the United States and how in the world would I know? So it's both get yourself an expert who knows the difference between plastic and ivory and hopefully have that paperwork. So for those folks doing planning or working with people who are doing planning, again, encourage them to keep good records if they have a collection of something like that. What do you do with the illegal stuff? You, you're not, if you're not allowed to sell a, a prohibited gun or something of ivory, and, you, and, and the decedent wasn't able to solve that problem before they died, then what do you do with it? Well, with regard to if you, and I have not personally had this, I've had lots of guns um, in, in different estates and trusts. I've never encountered one yet that was an unregistered gun that should have been registered under the National Firearms Act. But I do know that the law says you need to turn that over to either your local police or the uh, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms for them to destroy. And I think if you're a fiduciary, you just have to tell your, your beneficiaries, I'm sorry, but that's the law. Not myself. One of my colleagues did discover some, um, let's say, illicit white powder and, you know, turned it over to the police. I mean, that's all you can do. Turn most of it over. Yes. Well, <laughs> Alyssa, you I mentioned really the word provenance. What, what does that mean? Provenance is really the history of the piece. It's the the story of that of a certain object. So if you sometimes if you'll open a catalog uh, for auction, uh, sometimes you'll see a, a section that says provenance, and it includes where the history of that piece was. So was it exhibited at a gallery or at a museum, for example? Where was it purchased? Um, it might say acquired from the artist directly. Um, thence by descent. Uh, so there's are some of the terms that you'll see when, when discussing provenance, but basically it is the history of, of any piece. And that's for somebody to be able to figure out like, you know, where it was purchased up to the time that it is being sold. So, so if there was like a, a letter signed by Lincoln, that's something that would have a, a, a something, some kind of documentation that, that showed its history? Absolutely. Yes, you're going to want to be able to show where, you know, who was able to get that letter and then who had it from, you know, anytime there's photographs of somebody holding the letter or photographs with the person, um, you know, those are very helpful. Sometimes you'll see a painting that was hung in somebody's home, and that is really helpful information for us to be able to prove its history. Um, but yes, absolutely, that, that would be important to have. What happens if you can't prove the history, that there's a gap? I mean, I, I know we're hearing a lot from World War II where, where art was stolen, but even more simplistically, where you don't have a receipt. You know, your mom, your grandmother bought it at wherever, and you've got a piece. How do you know that it's not only genuine, but also acquired legitimately? Well, there's different techniques for different types of property. Uh, for paintings, for example, if you don't have any provenance and it's maybe an undiscovered work of art or is not part of the catalog raisonne and there isn't an expert committee that would be able to weigh in on that, there are different scientific techniques where you can actually test the paint. Um, you know, we are currently um, 
working with some with the FBI actually on a case um, because there was uh, where there's an art forgery ring out of Michigan um, that basically tried to put works of art through auction um, and basically claimed that they were unknown works. Um, what ended up happening was that there was forensic testing done on one of the paint colors. And it was actually found that that paint color did not exist at the time that the painting was purportedly made. So there are um, tests that can be done on paint samples. There's testing that can be done on Asian works of art, on the ceramics, on the china, uh, on various things. Certainly with a, with a Lincoln letter, there is going to be uh, the testing of the paper. There's going to be experts that would look at the, the way that the signature was, uh, was written. And so that is all, you know, those are all various things that are, um, you know, ways to determine if it is authentic or if it is not. You're listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We're your hosts, Craig Frankel and Adam Gaslowitz from the fiduciary litigation firm of Gaslowitz Frankel. We're talking today with Alyssa Quinlan, Chief Business Development Officer at Hyman Auctions, and Alan Bennett, Estate and Trust Advisor at SunTrust Bank, now Truist. And we're discussing personal property and estates, planning, appraising, and auctioning. And why don't we talk for a second about how we dispose of property, either either uh, through wise planning or um, if it ends up in the estate uh, through auctioning. Alan, you, you, you were a planner before you were a trust officer, were you not? I was uh, long ago and far away. I uh, used to, to do estate planning, and then I've spent most of my career on the exact opposite end of the spectrum, um, putting estate plans that other folks have written into effect. I think that's um, called unplanning. Yes. <laughs> so I think that, again, one of the lessons that I have learned over the years is, and, and to you know, estate planners who might be listening, is that I think that the typical estate planner spends far too little time counseling his or her clients with regard to personal effects, because back to one of the points we mentioned before, that's where a disproportionate number of the fights come in. And so I think that it doesn't get the attention that it should, you know, with estate planners spending lots of time on tax clauses and so forth, which are all well and good, and of course can be vitally important, but those fights are going to be over how to, you know, divvy up the, the family, you know, possessions. But I don't have, have any magic. Planners. What should they do? Well, so I think that it a couple of specific specific suggestions, and and these are not new, but um, it's common to have you know a clause in um, a document that says something like that I may leave a memo or a letter, and the effectiveness of those, the enforceability of those varies somewhat state to state, depending on the state law. But generally speaking, I think they're a good idea. Um, on kind of two two points. You don't really want to pay your attorney to put long lists, detailed lists in your will, um, unless it's really important, um, because you're paying a lot of money for that. But having the attorney put in that clause that says you're going to leave a separate letter is is a, a good idea, and I think can solve a lot of those problems. In my personal experience, uh, no no statistics, no hard statistics, but probably two out of three wills that I see have a clause like that. Probably one out of four, one out of five people who have that clause on their will actually go so far as to make a list. I've never seen one. I, I have seen them and I've seen them. And usually uh, they're one or two pages. Um, although I do actually, I have a little story about um, an estate that I handled not too long ago where the gentleman left and I don't remember precisely, but I want to say it was approximately a 20-page typed list 
with hundreds of items on it. And part of the background for that was that he was a, a wealthy gentleman who had a secretary. He had an office. He didn't really have much to do in that office. So he was able to, you know, dictate to his secretary um, his lists. And he was a collector. Um, as it happens, one of the things that he collected was guns. So we had pages and pages of details about, you know, which guns were to go to which friends, relatives, and so forth. Um, he also collected um, Western American, if that's the correct term, art. And he had pages of where those things went. And he had, uh, he was interested in hardware. He had, you know, lists of where his, you know, different things in his workshop should go. Interestingly, his wife had predeceased, um, actually his first wife, there was a second wife, but there was family silver and he didn't mention it at all. So one of the things we had to resolve was what to do with the family silver um, because under the will, it would have gone to the second wife, but it was actually from you know the first family. And so we had that issue, let's just say to resolve, but it was fascinating to me that what this man cared about were his guns and his, you know, uh, paintings of of Native Americans. He didn't care about you know his grandmother's silver. <laughs> so so think about do the list, do it carefully. Think about just not what interests you, but what would interest your children. So just as a as a hint. Alyssa, do people come to you in advance and say, "Gosh, I've got a collection, and and here and and I'd like to avoid a dispute in the future." Are there examples where they come to you? And when I ask that, I kind of think the silver is a good example. I'm not sure you can really get rid of silver other than melting it down. So are there certain things that are going to sell and certain things that aren't going to sell? Sure, absolutely. You know, there are so many clients that come to us. And I do think the message is, is basically, you know, spreading about, not, you know, the children don't necessarily want what their parents spent years and years collecting. People are always just so mystified by the fact that the china that they used for so long, that we're told it was so rare and so important, and uh, and the silver, people are entertaining so differently. You know, when you go to a wedding nowadays, people haven't registered for china. Well, in the in the non-COVID world, when you get to go to weddings, um, but you know, people aren't registering for china or silver. Um, houses that are being built oftentimes don't even have a dining room. So you have to look at kind of what the trends are. Silver that is by good makers will still sell very well. So kind of the best examples of certain property will still sell. And then there's other things that are just kind of the more of a commodity. So there is certain silver that would just be worth its meltdown value. When deciding about what to sell at auction versus what to either sell through an estate sale or donate um, really comes down to if there is upside potential. There are definitely times where selling at auction makes the most sense. And if you have a fiduciary responsibility for there to be transparent records of what that sells for, then selling at auction is, is very suitable. Um, that's when you have two different people that are willing to bid against one another to you know, drive that price up. And where you know, the auction house will bring together the buyers and the sellers and you know, you're paying the auction house for that marketing. How, how wide is their database? Um, if you're you know, listing the sales on all different internet platforms and you're able to reach hundreds of thousands of people internationally, that's something that would be worth paying for. But there's other times where it might just be worth its uh, worth face value. And in those instances, we would say it's best to either sell directly, you know, maybe sell it to a dealer or sell it to, um, you know, sell it through an estate sale situation. Um, but that is, you know, we definitely have clients that come to us because they are recognizing that their prized possessions are maybe not things that their, their family wants. And they are trying to 
um, handle things in advance. Not always, um, but but we do have clients definitely that come to us and and say that they want to kind of take care of things because maybe they just handled their parents and they don't want to leave their children with that same uh, with that same situation. Alyssa, if I could uh, do a follow-up question that just by sheer coincidence, I was discussing with some of my clients yesterday. Uh-huh. Can you speak to and, and explain to people the difference between selling with reserve and without reserve? Sure, absolutely. So when you sell, when, when an auction house gives you an estimate, that is going to be based on different comparables at auction. So they'll look at different you know, we'll look at other auction houses that have sold similar works and we'll come up with a range for the price. So if the fair market value for a work of art is say $10,000, we might give an estimate of eight to 12,000. The reason for that is because there is so much psychology behind uh, pricing. So you wanna get as many people in to bid on something. Auction houses are incentivized to sell property because we get a commission based on the highest price. So we are very aligned with clients. But what we want to do is make sure we get as many eyes on it as possible. So what once you have the reserve you know, discussion, that is going to be based on the estimate. So if the estimate is agreed upon for eight to twelve thousand, the highest price that you can you know, agree that you will not sell below is eight thousand. Um, sometimes in the state situations, there are clients that say, I want to sell without reserve. And that basically means that they're going to just, you know, lean on the market to decide what the appropriate value is. You typically begin the bidding at half of the low estimate. So you might begin at 4,000. If you have one bid at 4,000, then it would sell for that amount if it is listed at no reserve. Um, but again, the highest price you can sell it, you know, that you could set a reserve would be the low estimate at 8,000. Again, the psychology is interesting because what I've heard many auctioneers say is it's better to sell without reserve because that attracts more interest and will ultimately bid up the prices higher, but but then there's risk that something could sell for far less than the fiduciary or the family thinks it's worth. And so it, it's a balancing. It, it's not easy to decide. It's true. And there is sometimes emotional attachment. And so sometimes, you know, we'll handle a, a whole estate where they'll have no reserves on, you know, 99% of the property, but there's three items that they might say, if these don't sell for the low estimate, I'd rather take those back. Um, but there are things that are going to far exceed the high estimate. You're going to, it's just, you know, kind of the business. And then there's some things that might sell below the low estimate. So as a whole, you know, there, there will be times where, you know, it makes sense to sell without reserve um, in the interest of kind of closing out that estate and moving forward. What types of property generally does best at an auction? Right now, the strongest market I would say is, is still contemporary art. So um, modern contemporary, that is where we are seeing the, the most business. Um, jewelry is, is strong for signed pieces. So if you have, you know, jewelry by Cartier, Tiffany, Bulgari, Van Cleef and Arpel, uh, those pieces are, you know, do very, very well at auction. But in terms of the, you know, the highest by far is, is still contemporary art. There's still a major, major demand for that. And what we're seeing right now is that because a lot of the art fairs have been canceled or postponed and many galleries are closed, uh, that the auction values have, have, have gone up. Um, so it's been hmm. a very interesting time for sure. Ask the inverse question. What isn't selling? Large rugs. I'd say, you know, there's rugs, brown furniture. Um, you know, those are some of the things. One of the major, major categories that I feel like you come across in many estates is, uh, is stamps. 
Um, you know, just unfortunately, there's really not a new group of uh, of younger generation that are um, collecting stamps. And so that market is very, very soft. Round furniture, I would say, is, is one that, you know, you're, you'll oftentimes hear. People do buy it, but again, it's going to be a lot less. It's going to be suppressed prices to likely what they had paid for it. So there is a market per se, but, um, but if somebody is expecting that it's going to be multiples over the values, uh, they might have some disappointment. Um, is it harder to sell during the COVID uh, pandemic? Well, there was a Forbes article actually uh, where they where they mentioned that um, that the auction industry was pandemic proof. Uh, we were able to move very quickly to online auctions, and people are home and they're wanting to bid on things. They want to make their homes more comfortable, so they're buying artwork and they're buying furniture. Um, I had one client that reached out and said, "You know, I'm not going to be traveling to Europe this year." So I'd love if you could find me a 10 carat diamond. <laughs> so, so we did. Uh, so it's really kind of been a very interesting time, but our, um, you know, the market is very strong, I think, as a result of people being home and having time to, to look at auctions and to bid on things. So interesting times for sure. How big is a 10 carat diamond? Don't, don't answer. <laughs> it's, it's large. It's kind of like a- Coming to auctions, or tr- actually looking for specific things and saying, hey, can you find for us? Yes, yes. So that's really, you know, what we describe as private sales. So sometimes we'll have, uh, you know, we'll, we'll know of clients that are have different things. And if there is a price, sometimes you'll, you'll sell things privately. That is something that we've seen an uptick during COVID times because people might need the money sooner than waiting for the auction to take place. Um, so depending on when the auction is going to be held, um, some clients will ask for us to either seek out property if they're on the buying side or to sell it as well for them and, and get that transaction um, completed in a, in a shorter time frame. That, that leads me to the question to Alan. Alan, are you finding that there are more people saying, can I do a private sale and going to an Alyssa type and say, hey, let me try to, whether it's cherry picking or identifying, let me get the key items out of here generate some 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 financial money to the estate so we can make decisions on the rest honestly i have not encountered that i'm not you know i'm sure it's happening i haven't personally encountered it what i would do and again since i i handle some ongoing matters but mostly estates that's my little corner of the world i thought maybe you know to back up so speaking to folks who might be an executor you know the the most important thing, if you can, is to try to take control of the process as quickly as possible. Get in there, sometimes get the locks changed. And of course, this can be a challenge depending upon you know, who you're dealing with, whether it's your siblings, that can be a good thing or a bad thing, um, or whoever you're dealing with. Try to get control of the situation. Try to make sure that everybody knows it's too soon to start taking things, people. You know, we need to get it appraised. We need to you know, find out, you know, establish a process by which, and whether it's the family members, whoever the beneficiaries are, we're going to establish a process. And then let me note on that for our listeners, that is a huge problem. People coming in and taking and moving things. Oh, yeah. Conflicts that don't really exist. It creates suspicion. And, And you had mentioned something, you didn't use this word, but the best way to avoid a future conflict is transparency. Early and often. Yep. Of course, this is not always easy, but, you know, if you can convince everyone, look, 
We all need to know what is valuable, what isn't valuable. Um, and we always are careful to distinguish between there's fair market value and there's emotional value. And you know, what's what, you know, what a particular family member wants may be driven by one or maybe driven by the other. But if you can, as the one who's supposed to be in charge, try to take control, um, get the appraisals done, use, uh, again, depending on what the document tells you to do, but typically draw names, um, as the youngest of four, I have never liked the idea of going by, you know, the, the eldest chooses first, um, but whatever system works for the family is okay. Um, since, uh, you know, I, my first name starts with an A um, and my siblings' first names do not, going alphabetically by first names is a fine, fine way to go. Kidding aside, do it as fair a way as possible you know, pick names out of a hat or, or what have you. Take your turns doing your picks. Agree before, pardon me, but before anybody picks the first item, agree on your, your ground rules. You know, how are we going to do this? You know, are we going to take one, you know, one item at a time? What's the most typical? Are we going to do cash equalization or not? If the family can just decide that up front, let's make that decision before the first item is selected. When you take your turns, I don't spend a lot of time in this, but if there are three of you, I'll say ABC, um, Alan, Barbara, Cheryl, the way to do it fairly, which some people in my experience understand and get, and most of us don't, but just believe me, the most fair way to do that is, assuming A comes out of the hat first, B comes second, C comes third, is go ABC, CBA. A, B, C, C, B, A. And just trust me, it will be more fair in the end. I missed that statistics class. Yeah, well, yeah, I, this is absolutely true. One of the estates where I had siblings who were fighting, in fact, I believe at least one of them was represented by your firm. This is some years ago. And when they were fighting over Christmas wrapping paper, I mean, they fought over every element of personal effects. And the son said to me, you know, we've got to reverse order every turn. And I'm thinking, huh, back when I was in elementary school, you know, we just picked turns by, you know, pick teams by, you know, A, B, A, B, you know, what's this reversing? And so I went and did a little, you know, tried to do a little experiment for myself, you know, with some numbers and lo and behold, he's right. And in my experience, yeah, the people who were like finance majors, they get that. And most of us, you know, it's a hard concept, but just trust me on this. It, it is the more for, fair way to do it. But again, the, the big picture, folks select what they're going to select, and then invariably there's stuff left. And so then you decide, okay, what's left? Is there anything left that is, sometimes this discussion, of course, takes place even before you begin to choose, but are there things here that justify calling Alyssa and saying, you know, does it make sense to sell these at auction? Do we want to hire a, you know, a house sale firm or something like that? Or, you know, and, and so sometimes we do that. Sometimes we hold, you know, the proverbial house sale or have things trucked off to an auction house. Um, it depends on what you've got and what your family wants to do. In other cases, things go to charity. And then ultimately, you know, you hire someone to clean, you know, clean out the house and, and take the rest away. Before we wrap up, I just want to ask each of you uh, one last question, which is, uh, 
You know, why don't you tell us your best uh, auction or property disposal story that you've uh, had to deal with in your career? If you, if you want to make it your worst one, that's fine too. But Alyssa, why don't you start? Well, I'd say one of the most memorable was handling an estate um, of Gary Pepper, who was the president of the Elvis Presley fan club. And, and so we went to this estate in Iowa and uh, this woman had inherited this property. And so we started going through it and came across a packet of hair, uh, of Elvis's hair. So apparently anytime somebody joined the fan club, uh, Gary Pepper would send them a strand of Elvis Presley's hair. So that was something that I was, you know, is a, a new new concept for me. And so I learned a lot about it and did have to go through testing to prove that it was his. There was so much interest in it from collectors all around the country and around the world. Um, it ended up selling for $65,000, I believe. And um, there were some that basically were like, well, if we have his strand of hair, then we can clone Elvis Presley. So, so that was uh, one of my favorite stories because it was just something that you really never know what you're going to come across. And um, that is why I just love my job because, uh, you know, the stories that you hear from the clients and get to see the, the various types of properties is really, uh, is really a lot of fun. Alan, how about you? I'm going to I'm going to come up with with two quick stories and I have to be careful, of course, about not revealing anything. But um, it is public record that my bank handled the estate of a woman who wrote um, a, a pretty popular book made into an even more popular movie um, set in Atlanta um, in around the Civil War time. And so I did, you know, get appraised, um, not just a signed first edition, but a first edition inscribed to the author's father, thanking him. Um, and so that was an interesting item of personal property. It was not sold. It went to a beneficiary. Um, and the other, probably the most interesting single item I've ever found handled um, was an Oscar statuette. And so, you know, that uh, I can tell you sometimes on TV, they say, oh, it's heavy. Well, yeah, that sucker's pretty heavy. Um, and so I don't remember when. At a certain point, the uh, Motion Picture Academy uh, became concerned about people selling Oscars and changed their rules such that modern Oscars are only loaned to, is my understanding, to the winners, um, and they cannot be sold. They actually belong to the Motion Picture Academy. They're loaned for life to the winners. But before a certain age, so I had the Oscar for the best original screenplay of 1952, um, and that was just an interesting thing to, and it happened to be early in my career. I was still in Chicago at the time. So you know, walking through the streets of Chicago, carrying uh, this Oscar statuette back to the bank that I worked for at the time. So that was an interesting experience. I, ha I had a fight over an antique, beautiful violin bow, which I, I play the violin and I had to bring on an, and at court, the court made a decision. I had to bring the bow home it costs more than my first house. Yeah. And it scared me to death. So we're, we're really at the end of our show. It's been fascinating. Alan, if somebody wants to get in touch with you or get advice, how do they do that? Well, certainly um, you can go to, to suntrust.com. Um, if you want to contact me personally, uh, my phone number, and I will read this just so I don't mess it up on the radio, is 404-724-3476. Or my email is my first name, A-L-L-E-N, dot my last name, V-E-N-E-T, at suntrust, all run together, dot com. And Alyssa, how would somebody get in touch with you? 
Sure. They can find me on our website, which is HeinemanAuctions.com, H-I-N-D-M-A-N Auctions.com, or you can email me directly. Uh, it's Alyssa Quinlan, A-L-Y-S-S-A-Q-U-I-N-L-A-N at Heinemann Auctions. Excellent. I want to thank everyone for listening to Wealth Matters today, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. For more information about Gaslowitz Frankel, please go to our website at gaslowitzfrankel.com and remember to follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute and use our show's hashtag Wealth Matters. Our guests today were Alyssa Quinlan, Chief Business Development Officer with Heinemann Auctions, and Alan Bennett, an Estate and Trust Advisor with SunTrust, now to be Truist Bank. Please join us every fourth Wednesday of the month at 8.30 a.m. here at Wealth Matters on Business Radio X. Mm-hmm.